Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 16. Saints, give your attention now to the reading of the law of God, for this is, or the word of God, for this is God's very word. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except him himself. Except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word and now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with us now as we consider the name of God that no man knows, but the name that has been revealed to us, which we rejoice in. Dear God, help us this morning to hear, to understand, to love, and to obey. Dear God, I decrease that you may increase. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you and your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. We come now to yet another vision that was given to the Apostle John, and this time it is the conclusion to the judgment of Babylon, which began way back in chapter 17, when the angel said to John, come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. What is provided for us and for the church of all time is now the most expanded description of Christ's defeat and judgment of the ungodly forces at the end of history. From this point forward, John will begin to see the enemies of God exit the scene of history one by one. And they will exit this drama from the least of the wicked, although they, she is wicked, to the greatest of the wicked. The harlot will exit the scene, the harlot who is Babylon. The beast of the land will exit the scene. The beast of the sea will exit the scene. And then finally, the dragon, Satan himself, will exit this drama and he will be destroyed. He will be no more. John will receive two visions of this final battle. The first focusing on the fate of the beast when they gather to wage war against the lamb and his army. The second will be a recapitulation of the defeat of Satan, the dragon. This morning, with God's help, we will consider and give our attention to the one who rides victoriously into battle on a white horse. He is called, his name is called, Faithful and True. His name is called the Word of God. His name is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
That's what he is called. With each title, John is being shown that God will ultimately, this is the point, bring down his enemies. Judge those who have persecuted his church unjustly and vindicate his people. Vindicate his people, um, overturning their earthly verdict of guilty to innocent and giving her clothes of innocence, which are signified by clean and white linen. Let me say to you this, as we are getting into this 19th chapter, keep what I have just said at the forefront of your mind. There will be many things that we discuss in this chapter, but the point of this of these verses, verses 11 through 16, and really all of chapter 19 is this. God is bringing down his enemies once and for all. God will judge them for their unjust, for their unjust manner of dealing with his church. And God will vindicate his bride and show that she is in fact innocent like his son, Jesus Christ. If you get that, you get this chapter. This is why all of heaven rejoices. It is why there there are four hallels. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God reigns. This morning, we will consider the one who rides, but keep this at the forefront of your mind. Number one, the revealed character of God, the name of God, the revealed character of God, the name of God. Revelation chapter 12, I'm sorry, 19 verse 12. Let's look there. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on which no one knows except except himself. Saints, this may seem like a strange place to begin this uh, sermon or even this passage. But this verse is going to help us to see the weightiness of God as he reveals himself to his creation. So let's begin with a question. Ready for it? What is God's name? What is God's name? It may seem as though I have already answered the question, but I have only, in fact, given a description of his nature. I have not told you his name, and neither has God. When we say, well, his name is God, by God you are speaking of the one who, by definition, is creator of all. But we call him God. God means the author of all things, but it's not his name. The one who has given life and being to all things. By God, we are speaking of the one who is holy, perfect in being, but it's it's not his name, though. I'm speaking more about the ways in which God has revealed himself to create to creation, not exactly or precisely his name. We know that he has always been these things. But in terms of a name, a specific one name, no one knows his name. One may say, well, of course his name is is Yahweh. We all know that. That's not his name. It is a Hebrew word for the expression that God gave to Moses when Moses asked for his name. When Moses said, who should I say sent me? What is your name? Do you remember what the Lord said in response? I am who I am. Moses responds with, well, that phrase, if we, if we sum that phrase up, it's a phrase called Yahweh, but it's not actually your name. 
God did not actually give Moses a name. He gave Moses a, really gave Moses a theological lesson on, on the doctrine of God. God, when Moses asked for his name, God did not say, well, of course, my name is Charles. Tell them that Nathan sent you, of course. Tell them that, that John sent you. No, God does not say any of those things. Instead, God explains to Moses that he is who he is and that Moses could not comprehend the eternal being of God. Instead, God sums up his isness by saying, I am who I am. Or, or we could do it this way. Um, there are many names that are attributed to God, aren't there? If God has just one name, then why are there so many names that are attributed to God? Um, if you grew up in a tradition like mine, then you, you, you're used to hearing people preach and pray the names of God. Something like, your name is Jehovah Jireh. Your name is Jehovah Rapha. Your name is Jehovah Nisi. Or Jehovah Rafi. If you grew up in a tradition like mine, you would hear that preached. You are Jehovah Jireh, your name. You would hear it prayed. You are Jehovah Rofi. But those are not his names. They are ways in which God has revealed himself to his creatures. And the way that creatures have responded in light of the experience that we've had with God. What, what does that mean? It means this. Jireh. He has provided Rofe, he's healed. Nisi, or Nisa, however they say it. He is our protector or our banner. Rofi, he's our shepherd. Man has had these wonderful, glorious experiences with God. And in light of their experience with God, they've had a, a worshipful response to God and attributed something to him. The names have come from man. They have not necessarily come from God. God has provided. You are Jireh. You provide for us. God has healed. You are um, Rofe. You have healed us. God is protecting us. You are Nisi. Here, John speaks of a name that no one knows that's on God. He says in verse 12, there is a name on him that no one except himself knows. There is a name on God that only God knows but that we could never know. You remember in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob is wrestling with God all night long. Do you remember what Jacob asked for God after the wrestling? He doesn't ask God first to bless him. He asks God first for a name. Tell me what your name is. What does God say? Why do you want to know my name? It's Jimmy, of course. No, God does not give Jacob his name. Instead, he asks Jacob, why do you think that you could fathom my name? Why do you think that you could ever fathom or comprehend the incomprehensible? Why do you think that you could ever fathom the one who is fathomless? No, you will not receive my name because you are not able to. To receive or comprehend the nature of God. There is no way that you, that, that the creature could ever comprehend the creator. Instead, Jacob names the experience, not God. He names the experience Peniel, meaning face of God. He has this, this, uh, intimate face to face experience with God and he can't name God. He can only name the experience. 
To have a name of God is to place God into a box. It's to put the one who is uncontainable into a container, which God does not and cannot belong in. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3, the Lord says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as as God Almighty, as God. I revealed myself to them as this. They experienced this of me, but my name, the Lord says. I did not make myself known to them. The Lord says to Moses, I, I revealed myself to them. They had an experience with me, but they, they could never fathom who I truly am in the full essence of who I am. He's not a man like Antonio or Isaiah that can be commonly addressed or summed up. I can be summed up. God is simple, but he is also immutable. He's a God that cannot be confined to one single name, which is why there are so many names for God. Man has an experience with God and they they name the experience and attribute it to some kind of perfection in God. Are you with me? It's impossible to sum up the name of God. The unknown name of God is referring to the mystery that that only God knows God. Only God knows God's name. We can experience things about God and attribute those perfections of, of how he revealed himself. But we can never and we will never, even in glory, know him as he is. We will never know God qua God or God as God. Matthew eleven twenty seven. No one knows the son except the father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Listen to this. And anyone to whom the Son determines to reveal Him. There is a revealing. But in terms of a knowing the way the Son knows the Father and the Father knows the Son. And the Spirit knows the Father and the Son. We are never going to know that in that way. Yes, we are being divinized. Yes, we are being made like God. But we are not God. We are not God for God. We are not God as God. Only God is God. Only God knows the name of God, and only God is able to fathom himself. We are not able to fathom God. No one, the Spirit searches and knows all things, even the deep things of God. We are not able to do such in the way that God does, in the way that God is able. There is a mystery that will always, even in glory, cause the creature to marvel at the Creator. Isn't that wonderful? That when you get to heaven, you're not going to say, God, it makes all sense to me now, not even in heaven. In heaven for an eternity, you will not only ever be growing in your knowledge of God, you will ever be loving your growth of the knowledge of God. It's a work for you now, isn't it? Even for some of us, we're trying to stay awake. In heaven, you won't have to battle your body of staying awake. You will be given a new body that is always eyes open wide. Tell me more, tell me more. And loving every single bit of it. He has revealed himself in a ways that allow us to perceive him in a certain way. God has been good to you. So what do you call him? He is good. But he's even better than what you think. He's even gooder than, than what you think. He's even gooder than the good that we know, right? Uh, God is, is, has been merciful to you. He's been gracious to you and saving you. He's even more gracious and merciful than, than we realize. Now, this is interesting now. Because in verses, here's where, where, here's where the, um, the apparent contradiction comes. Because in verses 11 through 16... We're given not one, not two, but three names by the one who rides on the horse. He's called faithful and true. That is his name, the scriptures say. He's called the word of God. That is his name, the scriptures say. And he's also called king of kings and lord of lords. It's what the scriptures say. 
But your pastor has made an argument that he doesn't have a name. At least not one that we can fathom as God. You with me? So what gives? Does he have a name or not? Do we know his name or not? God is revealing himself. And in the way that God reveals himself, we attribute to him names that are proper to him. You with me? Names that are proper to him. If you were just to call him Jimmy, Jimmy is not a proper name of God. If you were just to call him Charles, that is not a proper name of God. What is a proper name that we, the creature, can attribute to God in light of how he's revealed himself? He is the word of God. He is faithful and true. It's what we have known about God that God has revealed to us that we can rightly and properly attribute to him as a proper name. He is king of kings and lord of lords because he is bringing down all kingdoms and he is ruler over heaven and earth. These are names that we can properly attribute to God in ways because of the experiences that we had with God. Does he have one particular name that we know? No. But he has many ways in which he's revealed himself that we can properly say this is true about God. Him. The word of God. Let's deal with that first one because it's in that verse. The name revealed is he is the word of God. The word of God is expressed here in a judicial role. Right? Since the writer will judge by means of God's word. The writer rides in. And he is coming to wage war and to judge. By what standard will the writer judge the wicked? He will judge the wicked by the standard of the word of God, for he is in fact the word of God. Now, John is not referring to the word as it is referred to in John 1.1. And the word was with God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh. He's not referring to the eternality of Christ as word. Are you with me? Here's how we know that, because in Revelation, he's called the word of God. In John 1, 1, he's simply the word. In, in Revelation 19, he's the word of God. There is a distinction there. The word of God is simply this. It is the word of God about God. In John 1, 1, he is the word in terms of the eternal son of God or the wisdom of God. Here in Revelation, he's the word of God about God which will be used as the measuring rod for how he will judge the wicked. Stay with me. So that in Revelation, the thrust of it is judgment. Revelation 19. So that when we take that phrase, we can't say, oh yes, he's speaking of John 1.1. No, he's using the word of God as that which will be the, the word, the tool by which he judges the nations. The thrust of chapter 19, the end of it, is judgment. The phrase word of God is the way that God will reveal himself to those whom he judges. God is revealing himself as the word of God who properly and righteously judges. How do we know this? Because his eyes are like burning fire. His eyes are a blaze of fire. They see all things. He is the word of God. He is the life, the testimony, the death. The resurrection, the descent, the ascension of Christ that is promised to return and judge the living and the dead by the word of God. General context of this passage is the wicked will suffer God's punishment on God's verdict. 
or God's word. The word of God is the sure fulfillment of what God has spoken to the prophets, chiefly among them through Christ. God will judge the living and the dead. The judgment of the wicked will vindicate the testimony of Jesus and those who are his servants. The fall of Babylon will fulfill the prophetic word of God concerning the final judgment and the vindication of the righteous. These are the true words of God. God cannot lie. What he has said he will do. What is this? I said in the beginning, he will bring down his enemies. He will judge them for their persecution of the bride. He will vindicate the church, overturning their guilty verdict from guilty to innocent. He's the faithful and true word. He's the eternal word. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But to know his name as God knows his name, no. But we do know how he has revealed himself. To some, he will reveal himself through the experience of salvation. And he will be given the name Savior. To others, he will reveal himself through the experience of judgment. And let me say to you, it is an awful thing to fall into the hands of God. The point, although that we do not actually know his name, it doesn't mean that we can't know him. Though we don't know his actual name, it doesn't mean that he has not revealed himself to us. We can count the many times that God has manifested himself to us. And every single one of those times of God manifesting or revealing himself to us results in a praise God. Hallelujah. Now, will we ever know the name of the Lord? Interesting here. Christ makes a promise of the churches, the seven churches. And there's an interesting contrast between 1912 and 217, which says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give him some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on it, the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. We, we talked about this way back when, probably a year and a half ago now, that there was a party in those days, and only those who have been given a white stone with their name on it were allowed into this party, into this special event. And Christ is saying, the earth has a stone of invitation, and so do I. I will give you a stone, used metaphorically. I will give you a stone, and there your name will be written on it. And it's not Anthony, and it's not Tony, and it's not David. It's a new name. It's a name that only will be known in heaven, and it's a name only known by heaven. And in the same way that God knows your true name, you will know God's name in a newer and greater sense in heaven. There will be an intimacy that you have when this covenant of consummation is completed, that you will know and that you will have with Christ in the most beautiful sense. You will know him in a supremely, altogether wonderful way. So though we don't know his name, and nor will we ever be able to fathom him, but there will be a time when our intimacy with him will be so much grander, so much more beautiful, so much more great than it is today. And we will know him in a completely different and new way for eternity. Praise be to God. He will bring us and our sojourning in this desert of the wilderness to an end. And bring us finally and forever into the promised land. And we will be there with him forever. Amen. Secondly, now, taking that in mind with you, 
Let's go into our next two points. Faithful and true. Faithful and true. Revelation 19.11. And I saw heaven open. And behold a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. John says. And I saw. This indicates that there is a new vision that John is being given. The vision is one. And just as I said earlier, it's one of God bringing down his enemies, <clears throat> judging those who have unjustly persecuted his church and vindicating his bride. Get that as the thrust of the chapter of the remaining chapter. We might even say overturning the verdict that was pronounced on her from guilty to innocent is um, one half of what Christ will do when he returns the other half is bringing down those who have proclaimed guilty as now receiving a guilty verdict. The guilty who have been proclaimed are innocent. Those who proclaim to be innocent are proclaimed as guilty. It's what Christ will do when he returns. In this vision, John sees heaven open it. And, and let's not allow our minds to get too elaborate. But John sees a vision, a vision of heaven opening. And out of heaven comes one who rides upon a white horse, preparing to judge and wage war. The one who rides, the white, the white horse, let's end all suspicion because we should know it by now, is Christ. Christ is the one who rides the white horse. Now remember, Revelation is a book of symbols. So is Christ literally riding a white horse out of heaven? You should all be, all of you, RBC members should be shaking your head. No, of course not. It is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for a few things. Bear in mind this right off the bat in this terms of this metaphor. Christ, the one who rides out of heaven, the one who is faithful and true. He's not riding a donkey. He's riding a war horse. Christ is not riding a donkey but a war force. In the first advent of Christ, in his first coming, Christ rides into Jerusalem as the, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Israel. But he is riding what? He's riding a donkey. He fulfills Zechariah's prophecy of one who rides in meek and humble. Rejoice, Zechariah 9, 9. Greatly, daughter of Zion, shout in triumph. Daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. When Christ rode into Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, it was to display that he is one who is humble, one who is meek, one who is lowly, one who is lovingly offering himself as a ransom for the sins of many. I'm going to keep saying this in his first advent. Christ mercifully declares, John 3, 317. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him would be saved. Christ is not saying that he was not ever going to judge, but that in his first advent, it was not for the purpose of executing final judgment. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 18, he who believes in him, Christ, is not judged. But he who does not believe in him has already been judged. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men have loved darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. 
in the first advent of Christ, though in the first advent of Christ, judgment was not executed, Christ makes it clear that those who deny him are, 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 are already judged. I do that a lot whenever I use those two words together. They are already judged. They have taken the mark of the beast. They will be among those who suffer for their disbelief. But Christ told of a time in his second advent, which is the advent that we are waiting for, that he will return and that he will judge. Truly, truly, John 5.25, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he who gave authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. Listen now, for a time is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did not hear, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. In Matthew 26, the Lord foretells of a time when he will be seen at the right hand of power, and that he will come riding on clouds of heaven. For what purpose? It is the return of Christ to judge. Christ will bring down his enemies. He will execute judgment upon them and bring salvation to his people. Let me stop for just a second. I keep saying, I keep saying, uh, God will bring down his enemies. Who are the enemies of God? They are those who in word and deed deny Christ. You don't have to be just one who is persecuting the church to be one who is an enemy of God. Saints, you could be sitting in a church even on this day and not belong to Christ and therefore be an enemy of Christ. Even though you sit in a church, by word and deed, those who deny their faith, who deny the true faith in Christ, who are the those who are persecuting the church, they will be judged along with the enemies of God. It's hard when we, uh, my wife was talking to me about a family member that she has. And she said, it's hard for me to tell her that she's not in Christ. It's hard for me to tell her that she is presently an enemy of God. Even though she claims to believe in God, even though she says certain things sometimes that are in the direction of what you would want someone to say about God, she's still not a believer. She is presently an enemy of God. It's hard for us, right? Because when we think of enemies of God, we only think of those who are the vilest of people. But let me say to you, saint, that there are only two kinds of people. There are those who are in Christ, who live so according to word and deed, and there are those who are not in Christ, who are living so according to word and deed. There are no middle-of-the-road people. There are no, uh, they're okay, they're not as bad as, as, as the next person. No, brother and sister. If they are not in Christ by word and deed, then they are not in Christ, and they are just as bad as the bad person. Keep that in mind. The first advent of Christ, he did not come to judge, but to save. The second advent of Christ, he will return to judge and save the world. Judge and save. Two things will be happening. He will be saving, which is a type of vindication, and he will be judging once and for all. John sees Christ returning, riding on white horses. Now, there's three things of this metaphor of white horses. The white horse is first meant to symbolize the glory of God. The glory of God. Christ will return in glory. And when Christ returns, all men will see his splendor. They will see his majesty, his weightiness, and the power of Christ. Revelation 14, 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. 
And sitting on the white cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Christ will return in glory and in power. That's what, it, that's what the white horse is first meant to symbolize. Secondly, they are meant to symbolize triumph and war. Even before John tells us that Christ comes to make war, he sees victory in this war already accomplished by the fact that Christ is riding on victory horses, white horses. If you see any old Roman movies, uh, when they come back from battle in, in victory, they are riding white horses. Each time that we are told of a battle, we find that there is, in Revelation, there is no bloodshed on our side. There are none lost on our side. When we see the 144,000, we see them once, then we see them again, and not one number has been lost. Christ is victorious in this battle. He stands, and if we stand in him, we also stand victorious in this battle. At the very beginning of this collection of vision, John sees resurrected Christ and proclaims, Christ proclaims, do not be afraid, Revelation 1, 7, 17. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I have the keys of death and Hades. Christ is saying, I stand victorious. I am the reigning, conquering king, Christ says. I pray that you've learned that in our time of Revelation. That you've learned that this book of Revelation is not a book of defeat, but one of victory. That you've learned in our time of Revelation that Christ is victorious, and that if I stand in him, that I am also victorious. That Christ is going to bring down his enemies once and for all, and save us as people once and for all. Thirdly, the white horses are meant to symbolize the holy righteousness by which Christ judges. Revelation 19.12, his eyes are a flame of fire. He's, let me slow down. I've been like sprinting through the sermon. He knows and sees all. Little ones, sometimes we, we are hoping that our parents don't see something. We are hoping that our, um, our deeds that are not in line with what our parents would want, are not seen by our parents. If we could just hide this from our parents, we could get away scot-free. There is nothing that goes beyond or unseen from the eye of God. God sees all. I say that not only to the little ones, but to the oldest of ones, to the middle-aged ones. God sees all. There is no deed that is hidden from his sight. His eyes are a blaze of fire. His eyes purify even beyond the things that we offer that have no true faith within them. He sees beyond them. He knows all. He sees all. Christ said to the church of Thyatira, the Son of God, he's saying to the church, has eyes like a flame of fire. And he says to them, just as he says to every single one of those churches, Tony, I know your deeds. It's as if Christ is saying to the church of Thyatira, to Smyrna, uh, to all seven of them, I've walked in your church. I've not just seen you sitting there. I've seen the heart behind the one who sits there. I've seen what goes through the mind when the word of God is preached. I see it all. I've surveyed your hearts as I've come into your church. There is nothing hidden from my sight, the Lord would say. There's nothing hidden. And when he executes judgment, he does show he does so not lacking information. He does so when he executes judgment, um, not with. No one's able to say, but did you see this, Lord? Mm. Not only did I see the deed, I saw behind the deed. I saw the heart and, and the, the mind behind the deed. This is why when someone comes to Christ at the very end and says, but I did this, 
and, and, and I preached in your name and I prophesied in your name and I went to this street and I said this on my job and I was online making these comments online. The Lord will say, but I've seen you. And I don't know you. Let that never be said of any of us. Dear God, let that never be said of any of us. Let it be said of us, well done. Let it never be said of us, I do not know you. He surveys our hearts. Dear God, when our hearts begin to to stray, when our minds begin to wander, let that be the very moment that you say, God, bring my mind back. Lord, my heart is starting to long for other things. Please kill that. Cut that off now. There will be no... um, there will be no lawyer coming in with extra evidence hoping to give it to the judge to be admitted in the final verdict. Christ, he is the final judge. He sees it all. And there will be one who is attempting to to say about you, he is not worthy of salvation. He is not worthy of the grace that he has been received that he has received in Christ. There will be an accuser But he will be silenced once and for all because Christ knows and sees all. And not only that, but he will bring down the accuser. The accuser of the brethren will have no more words to say. No more accusations against you. You and I will be covered in the blood of Christ. Let us continue to walk in the grace that Christ has given to us. He knows and he sees all. He knows our spiritual condition. He who rides on a white horse... Or on clouds of glory, he is faithful and true. It's how he's revealed himself. In so many ways, but in this context, which is important to take into account, Christ reveals himself as the one who is faithful and true. Meaning what? He will keep his word. If you've trusted in him, you'll be saved. My my daughter knows this verbatim now. Whenever we do family devotions, uh, Selah. If you trust in Christ, she finished, you will be saved. If you trust in Christ, you who are hoping to be saved one day, fully and finally, you will not be put to shame. You will not say, I was a fool for trusting in Christ. No, Christ is faithful and true. If you place your faith in him, you will be saved. Romans 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 11, whoever believes in him will never or not be put to shame. Your devotion to the Lord's Day Sabbath and coming and receiving God's word and living by it, it's not for naught. It's not meaningless. You've not been wasting your time. When your family asks you, why do you not come to the family gatherings, but you make a commitment to come And gather with the saints for worship. You can say to them. Because those who trust in Christ will never be put to shame. You may be shaming me now. But I will not be shamed in the end. I will be vindicated in the end by those who who attempted to say to me. Why do you do? It's a fool's errand to do what you're doing. No, those who hope in Christ. They will never be put to shame. Why? Because God is faithful and true. His word is true. If you trust in Christ. You're being saved. You're being. You have been saved. You're being saved from all of Babylon's advances. You're being saved from all of the false prophets. You're being saved from Satan. If you trust in Christ, when he returns fully and finally, the wicked will be judged and you will be saved because God is faithful and true. 
You can trust in this. We know this. We worship the one true God. Because he doesn't change. That's how you can know this. God does not change. We worship the God who was the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Which is why we can say he is faithful and true. He doesn't change. Our marriages, what do we want most? We want our, our husbands and brides to be faithful. We want them most of all to just be true. And we are thankful when they don't change that, aren't we? We're thankful when he's still faithful. Um, he's still being true to me. Well, God, you never have to wonder if God will be faithful. You never have to wonder if God will be true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. If you hope in him, you will not be put to shame. You will not say, why did I give myself to this man? Like some who have been experienced the, the, the pain of separation. You live with regret. Why did I ever do this? How could I ever? You'll never be able to say that about God. Amen. You will never be put to shame. Amen. Regardless, let's say this. Regardless of how many times we are not faithful and true. Regardless of, of how many times in our... Saints, it's why when we confess our sins, we need to say, Dear God, I have been unfaithful here. I have been unfaithful there. I have been untrue here. I have been untrue there. But thanks be to you, you are not unfaithful and you are not untrue. Which is why he can say to you, Dear one, your sin is forgiven. I, I won't change. I know you change. I'm making you more like me, but I won't change. I won't change. Hebrews declares, because this is true. Let us hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised you, he is faithful. He is faithful. We often are not, are we? We often are ashamed. But praise be to God, he always is. Revelation 6, the saints have gone before the throne of God. They are under the throne of God. And here's what they're praying, Tony. They're saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? God says, rest, rest a while. And then Revelation, because God is faithful and true, God sees the one who, God, John sees the one who is faithful and true, finally and fully executing judgment on those that the, that the saints under the throne are saying, God, please avenge us. God is saying, I will. And they can rest because he is faithful and true. First part of faithful and true is, God can be trusted. If you place your hope in him, you can be confident that you will receive what you're hoping for. Heaven will be yours. Let's watch this. You will rejoice with saints that have gone before us. Watch this. Let's, Let's keep going up. You will be in the presence of holy angels and see them. But even more than that, you will have Christ. And you will have that sweet intimacy with him forever. And it won't change. If that's what you're hoping in, your hope is on a sure foundation, not a shaky one. It's not like the stock markets that go up and down. It's not like gas prices that are fluctuating. If your hope is in the rock, it will never be shaken. The final part or the second part of faithful and true is that not only will God save the righteous, but he will wage war and judge the wicked. He will. John sees him riding out of the gates of heaven, as it were. And he's waging war against the, 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 the wicked, and he will judge them. Now, let me be very clear. The war referred to here is not a literal battlefield. It's not uh, this war that's going to take place in, some, in, in, in a field called Megiddo. It's a legal war. 
wherein there is a verdict of guilty proclaimed. Christ is not going to be, in a literal sense, having a sword. And um, I'm going to bring out the nerdiness again. Um, Like Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, he's not going to be on a horse just chopping down all of these monsters. Not, Not in a literal sense, no. Christ comes with the word of God, which is the sword. And he rides on clouds of glory, which is his majesty. And he will proclaim war against those who are unrighteous. But the battle is already won. All that is needed to be said now is the verdict. Upon the wicked, they will be guilty. And when he does this, he judges those who judged us. And proclaims upon them that they are forever guilty. And they will be cast into utter darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there will be no end to that place. Many don't like to hear that part. We, we, we love the, the amen of the, the part that I just preached. But we should be just as, as excited and just as exuberant about God judging the wicked. Because it is why he is faithful and true. You and I are appalled when a wicked man escapes judgment on, in earthly courts. But you will not be appalled in heaven. You will say with God, Amen. Faithful and true are you, Lord. And you will agree, and not only agree, but you will shout hallelujah when he judges the wicked. You won't say, but that's my brother, that's my cousin, that's my grandma. No. You will agree with God's judgments as being faithful and true. Third and finally, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This will be the shortest point. John sees that upon the head of Christ, there are an infinite number of diadems. Diadems are jewels on his crown. By this, the other acts of judgment, namely, the that is um, that are metaphorically. Let me let me say this again. Um, The things that are written on his thigh are metaphorically true as we see the infinite number of diadems, which is this. He is king of kings and lord of lords. That which is written on him rings true by what he wears, an infinite number of diadems. You remember that the dragon also has a crown on his head with seven diadems, seven jewels. He's parading as one who has absolute power. Satan is pretending That he is the one who has authority over all the kingdoms of the world. Um, You've heard that Satan is the god of this world. No, he's not the god of this world. God is god of all worlds. Satan is the god of those who live on the earth. That is the earth dwellers. And we've learned in Revelation that the earth dwellers are those who have taken the mark of the beast. He is their god. He's not god of the world as if God is saying, this is your world. No, this is God's world. We we sing this. It's the world of God. All worlds belong to God. But those who follow Satan could be, in a sense, um, children of the devil, and their world could be, in a sense, called God's uh, devil, the Satan's world. But it is God's world. Satan possesses a false power. He possesses a false authority. He is not King of Kings, and he is not Lord of Lords. You've heard that phrase before, right? King of kings, Lord of lords. John is teaching us something magnificent about Christ. Here's what he's doing. 
King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's bringing heaven and earth together in the person of Christ. He is saying God is kissing, in a sense, or touching the earth with his foot. That heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool, in a sense. And Christ is the ladder between them both and the ruler of them both. He's the champion of earth, for he brings down all kings and all kingdoms. And he is the ruler of heaven, for he is Lord of all. When you say King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I pray that you think of it now not just as a simple title, but as heaven and earth meeting in the person of Jesus Christ. John's description of Christ wearing a crown is meant to communicate that he is supreme king and has authority over all kings. Titles taken from Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar is forced to acknowledge that God is king of heaven. Or that God rules all kings on earth as being king of kings. Nebuchadnezzar at that time was the most powerful king on the earth, ruled over Babylon. And when he believed that his rule and his power came from his own might, he quickly, while the word was still in his mouth, was brought down to humility as an animal. When he is brought back to his senses, he acknowledges that God is king. And now here John applies that title to Christ and says in the way that God brought down Nebuchadnezzar, the way that God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar in the past, so Christ will deal with all Nebuchadnezzars, all Babylons, every single one of them from every single nation will be brought down. Christ rules over all nations. There is nothing that takes place apart from his sovereign hand. The first recipients of this, they would have said, yeah, like Caesar in Rome. But John's making the point that it's not just Caesar in Rome. The wicked nation, Babylon, and you learn this, are all of those who deny Christ by word and deed. So you could be living in a place like the United States of America, and you could, be, you could belong to Babylon. And let me say that there are, I've said this before, there is not one nation that specifically is Babylon. No, Babylon is a spiritual nation comprised of those who, who, who deny the life, death, and resurrection and glory of Christ, who is the Son of God. If you deny that, not just by word, because you could be sitting here and go, I, I confess those things, but also by deed, then you are a citizen of Babylon. If you live in the opposite of that, say, I confess not only Christ's life, death, resurrection as my own, but I trust in him for my salvation, and I do so by word and deed, then you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. Because there are not only two people, but there are two, two citizens, or two nations, two kings, two kingdoms. You are in Christ, or you are in Satan. You are in the kingdom of God, or you are in the kingdom of Satan. One will come crashing down, one will rise and reign forever. Those who oppose Christ are a part of Babylon, and Christ will bring them down. He is clothed beautifully in a robe that is dipped in blood. We Because of his sacrifice. No. The blood that is dipped in blood is drenched because of the blood of his enemies. It's not because he had shed his blood. It's because he's shedding blood. The blood of his enemies. He's riding in on war. Uh, for anybody who, who, who just wants the, 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 the meek Jesus, uh, tell them to go to Revelation. Because Christ is not just um, 
one who rides on a donkey, that was his first advent. Second advent, he is coming on a horse of war, and his blood will be drenched with the blood of his enemies. It's a preview to the, to the defeat that he has already won over the beast, the false prophet, and all earthly kings and all earthly armies. They will come crashing down. And literally, if you can see it in your mind's eye, uh, the Holy One drenched in the blood of his enemies. He is faithful and true. He will judge the wicked. Remember in, in Revelation 14, the enemies of God, they're crushed like grapes in a wine press. The judgment of God, the defeat of God was so great that it fills the land up to the horse's bridle, up to their up to their faces, uh, the bottom of their chin. There is blood that fills the land, which is the blood of the enemies of God. From the mouth of Christ comes a sharp sword and he cuts down the nations. Remember uh, Psalm chapter two, the Lord's anointed breaks the nations. Quarren and uproar, who, who desire to cast off restraints like a rod of iron and pottery, Christ crushes them. So the king of kings will do to the wicked. He will tread the winepress with the fierce wrath of God. The Almighty concerning him, the, uh, the Almighty is declared, and concerning him it is declared, he is king of kings and lord of lords. Such a presentation of a divine warrior, full of wrath and vengeance. Again, it's offensive to some. Some people don't want to hear that. They just want to hear about a God who is just and forgiving. But vengeance and redemption will both be dispensed when Christ comes. Isaiah 63, 4. In the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. Vengeance and redemption, both when Christ returns. Redemption for those who are God's friends by grace and vengeance for those who stubbornly and persistently refuse Christ. Here's the point of it all. God is bringing down his enemies and will bring them down. Here's the point. God will judge righteously and vindicate his people. And here's the point. And we are not a people without hope. Therefore, we must not live or speak like a people without hope. We know that laws and legislations in this country and in others are not what they will be in the new creation. But we're not there yet. And we must not give in to the cynics and become cynics like them. Those who live without hope. We must not be those who survey the ever political changing landscape. The ever-fluctuating stock market. Uh, the rising and falling again of gas prices and, con and conclude there is no hope. Well, we're all going down and going down quickly. We belong to the one who is faithful and true. We are citizens of the kingdom of the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. We have a sure and eternal hope. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we trust in the one who is the one true God. We're shown this in this passage, aren't we? We've seen the one who is faithful and true, the one who is the word of God, the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. Listen to this. He's not alone in this verse. In verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven, you and I, clothed in fine linen, me and you, white and clean, were following him on white horses as well. We are with Christ here in the end. 
Christ is riding a white horse, and so are you. Christ is dressed in fine linen, and so are you. Christ is victorious, and if you are in Christ, then so are you. Christ does not ride alone. He rides with his army. Who are they? Well, they're not angels, because angels don't need white clothes of vindication. Revelation chapter 17 14, they are those who are chosen and faithful. They stand with Christ and they fight with Christ. And the fight is already won because Christ is already victorious. They are the saints for all time. They are you and me. And what are our weapons? Well, not citizen, not, not cynicism, dear one. Not hopelessness. Our weapons are prayer, the gospel, the helmet of salvation, having your feet shod with truth. We are those who stand with Christ. We are those who, who fight not with swords made of metal, but the word of God that remains forever. Not only is Christ king of all with limitless diadems, but he gives crowns to us as well. He's not, only, he's not the only one wearing a crown, but he gives you a crown and says, you ride with me and you reign with me. Brothers and sisters, the point is that Christ is bringing down and will bring down all of his enemies. The point is that we stand with him, and because we do, we will be vindicated. All powers, all authorities, Christ will bring them down, and we will bring them down with him. He will judge them as the righteous king, and we will amen his judgments. He is the word of God, and if we hold fast to his testimony, then we, in a sense, wield that sword along with him. Christ is ruling and will rule in a new and consummate final way. And here's the glory of it all. If you can be trusted, if you can, if you trusted in Christ, then your hope will never be put to shame. Then everything that we have said this morning through God's word, which is authoritative, not me, but God's word, which is authoritative, it is so and it is true. And you can rejoice and be glad and have hope, not only for the future, but for today. So let your conversations when you're around the water cooler talking about the events of the world. Let it always end with this. But for those who hope in Christ, they will never be put to shame. Let us pray.